0: at the Football Overview today. A tale of two halves as City have the edge going into the second leg. Tuchel's Chelsea dominate Madrid, but Benzema needs just one chance. Which three forwards we'd start for Chelsea? The La Liga and Ligue 1 title fights. End of the show quiz. Plus, our top five managers since Guardiola's appointment as Barcelona manager. That's your roundup this week at the Football Overview. Hello and welcome to the Football Overview. Today, I'm joined by Johan Azlet.
1: Thanks for having me on, Dylan.
0: And I'm joined by Luke Bateman. Evening, Dylan. So we're going to jump straight into it tonight because we've got loads to get through. So what was your moment of the week, Johan?
1: Okay, so I selected Timo Werner's striking miss in the opening few minutes of the first leg of the semi-final against Real Madrid. I mean, it was horrific. I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. I think that miss was pretty much emblematic of his performances this season, does everything perfect everything is great until the final product in the box so yeah that is my moment of the week
0: yeah it was a huge moment wasn't it that miss from Werner in the opening minutes of the game Luke what was your moment of the week
2: My moment of the week was Kalechi Ianaccio providing another huge contribution to Leicester's season uh, with a goal and an assist against Crystal Palace on Monday just gone. He's scored winners in loads of Premier League games now. He's contributing assists. He's contributing goals at a rapid rate. He's gotten through to the FA Cup final. Um, He's having an absolutely unbelievable season. I think he's got 16 goals now, which is as many as Rashford, I believe. There was a debate a couple of years ago about who was better when they were both at the Manchester clubs. Is that debate back on?
0: Yeah, it's a huge turnaround, isn't it, for Nacho this season. Wasn't starting much earlier on, but suddenly he's the one in the goals, isn't he, at Leicester? Especially with Jamie Vardy, he's been struggling with goals of late. But we're going to start off tonight, guys, with PSG against Manchester City. And Arsene Wenger, after the match, said that in the second half, PSG were protective and not progressive anymore. After one all, they completely collapsed. And Kevin De Bruyne said, we know there's going to be moments in these type of games where we're going to suffer. You have to set your minds that you are going to have to run hard and work hard for the team. So in this game of two halves, guys, what did you think, Luke?
2: Yeah, I think I've not seen a game of two halves like that. It's always a cliche to say that, but I think you guys will agree with me. Man City were, were getting killed in the first half, and I don't think it was necessarily because they were bad. I think PSG were really playing wonderfully. There were waves and waves of attack. I thought Neymar was absolutely majestic in the first half. I thought his his head was at it. He was he was he was humble in his play like he was he was bringing out all the tricks and flicks but we weren't seeing all the diving and the histrionics he wasn't doing all the stuff that he then ended up doing in the second half i thought they were fantastic they kept winning the ball back from city pressing going forward going forward they could have been 2-0 up 3-0 up they just kept going i thought they were absolutely fantastic I and mean, they they could easily have been a couple of goals up at the break and then city just a switch just flicked or whatever and the second half they barely let PSG get out their box. PSG were penned in. They were getting reckless... Um they, they, were, they were trying to hold off the waves of attack and in the main, they achieved that. It was a bit of a fluky goal for De Bruyne and then the free kick, you could say, was a bit fluky as well because it went through the wall and took a deflection. So there is an argument to say City got slightly lucky with the goals that they scored, but they definitely deserved at least a draw, if not a win, from their performance in the second half. So yeah, I thought it was just absolutely a tale of two halves in the most complete way.
1: I think it was perhaps overly cynical for Wenger to make those comments. I think the reason for why they stood out and kind of accentuated their abilities more so than, for example, with Neymar it really was because, first of all, they dominated possession. I thought PSG, strategically speaking, were almost, you know, that first half were pretty sublime. The way they sat back, they enabled Man City to dominate possession. But even in possession, they didn't really, not many attacking developments really materialized. You didn't really see them place. The siege they usually place on opposition teams when they have that degree of possession. Um, I thought the absence of a striker really resulted in, as we know, I think Dylan will speak more about this later, but a lack of movement in the box. And it kind of hindered the likes of Gundogan and uh, De Bruyne. So the first half, they didn't really take effect. They, had, they didn't really have the ability to really execute those kind of uh, you know, lethal balls in behind the defence. But although, obviously, comes second half, as we saw, the reason why De Bruyne is the high calibre player he is, is his ability to adapt... Um, and in Chem's second half, the dynamic of the game was changing.
2: I completely agree with Ewan, uh about being overly critical of PSG. I think if we're going to be that critical of them in the second half, we should be really full of praise for their first half. Because as Joran said, they made Man City look extremely ordinary. They look, made them look almost scared. And as Joran was saying, as they sat back in possession and they, they conceded a bit of it, they looked very comfortable. And then when they had possession, they were... They were beating Manchester City's press. They were all being brave. Paradez was being brave. Marquinhos was being brave. Uh, Ferrati is always brave. They were either popping it round City players playing 1-2 or they were sort of trying to glide. And more often than not, they weren't getting caught because Man City's press was not that high. I thought they were just fantastic in the first half. There's no doubting that PSG were brilliant in the first half
0: at times. However, I would say it was more down to Manchester City's poor pressing which allowed PSG to be able to pass through. So Kevin De Bruyne said, after the match, after 25 minutes, we changed the way we pressed them and it became better. And what Kevin De Bruyne means when they changed the press was that Guardiola changed from a 4-3-3 to a 4-4-2 when pressing to match up with PSG's two centre-backs and two holding midfielders. Because what was happening early on in the game, Luke mentioned Paredes there and Marquinhos. Basically, Foden was having to position himself alongside Kevin De Bruyne, during the press, off the left. But then that was allowing then loads of space on the right for PSG to escape the press through Marquinhos, through Florenzi and through Paredes. So when Guardiola changed it up and matched them up, PSG were no longer able to get through the press and that's where they really struggled. And that's what I was trying to get to earlier in terms of you know, Luke mentioned this, City did really struggle in the first half, didn't they? But they managed to get through those moments of suffering because of the work rate from De Bruyne, the work rate from Mares. When PSG were defending deep, you didn't see that work rate from Neymar, from Mbappe, to get PSG of 10 yards up the pitch. They were just constantly on the edge of the box, almost inviting the
2: pressure from City. What do you think of that, Luke? I think that is probably fair enough. I mean... When you're playing well and when there's waves and waves of attack, which is a, a dream for an attacker, of course you're going to see Neymar working hard. Of course you're going to see Di Maria trying to win the ball back because they're in a great moment. They've got momentum. It is harder to to get your game up again and get your energy levels back when you're on the back foot and when you're one all and when you're 2-1 down. I do understand that. And Manchester City's players are more adept at sticking to a real hard work rate for 90 minutes because PSG don't often have to do it. Despite
0: PSG not having a shot on target from the 28th minute onwards in this match, not a single shot in the second half, PSG still had a greater expected goals than City. 1.53 to PSG, 0.892 City. So, Luke, you mentioned earlier about City getting lucky. Could we quite easily be talking about City's lack of a number nine yo's as being the reason they lost this match? Because the goals they scored were quite lucky. They weren't really creating many chances. The amount of times they got the ball wide and there was no striker to play the cross into...
1: Well, I absolutely agree, and I think that was the reason why, specifically that first half, why De Bruyne was really deprived of playing to the best of his ability. There was no creativity, there was no movement, so I think he was really dependent on the likes of Foden to really kind of develop all of a sudden this kind of striker's instinct, which we all know he doesn't really have, obviously, given his young age. So I think, and again, we can all say that PSG were very stable, defensively speaking, and which they were, obviously, to a large extent, but as we just touched on now, when you have no movement in the box, I mean, what threat do you really pose? It's great dominating possession, but what do you do if there's no one running in behind? So that's an area that really has to come under a lot of scrutiny, and for the reasons you have explained, the two goals they had were an element of fortune, obviously, involved. So I do think Guardiola really has to reevaluate on how he's going to get that greater dynamic kind of movement taking effect in that box, so we just have to wait and see, but... Again, you would think that Guardiola has something up his sleeve. Let's just put it over.
2: Boys, what do you think of the sort of constant snubbing of Aguero? I'm starting to find it a little bit uncomfortable.
1: But as Dylan mentioned, though, because the biggest issue or the biggest difference between the first and second half was the pressing, as Dylan already mentioned, with the two up front, obviously placing him under a more siege. Do you really reckon Aguero could accommodate that? I think that is probably the biggest, you know, at least contributing factor for why he didn't play him. And obviously, given the fact that he's not going to play, that he's already ruled himself out, I'm pretty sure. So I think it's really just that, to be honest. I don't really think he could accommodate Pep's demands to see off the game.
0: I was a little bit surprised that when PSG went a man down due to the Idrissa guy sending off, that then he didn't put on a striker. Because if Mm. they score a third, it's game over. And PSG couldn't pass through the press when they had 11 men on the pitch, let alone with 10... So if they had put on another striker to have those movements in the box that Yeom was talking about earlier, surely that would have led them to having more of a chance of getting that third goal and putting that game completely beyond PSG.
2: Yeah, that's what I was getting at because they were just absolutely lost their heads, didn't they? After two one and Idrissa Gay got sent off, who's one of the more disciplined players probably in the PSC squad. So once he goes and does that, and Neymar was going down with fouls, you know, every ten to fifteen seconds for about fifteen minutes, which was it was unbelievable, yeah. wasn't it? He just kept getting up, getting down again, getting up. I mean, literally every ten seconds, they completely lost their heads. I couldn't agree more with Dylan. I mean. City just kept driving and driving and driving. You just kept thinking, get, you're going to get a third, they're going to get a third. And if they hadn't got a third, quite rightly, as you say, it would have been game over and the tie would have been over. So I don't understand why he didn't bring on at least, at least Jesus, if not Aguero. Yeah, because Jesus could at least give the
0: pressing that Jom was on about. Obviously, Aguero, yeah. he's been out injured, hasn't he, for a while? So maybe he wasn't able to apply the pressure that was necessary to keep... PSG under that intense pressure, but Hazer surely was the best option to come on with 10 minutes to go and that sending off from Adrissa Guy. And something else I noticed just before we move on was that in the second half, Guardiola allowed his fullbacks more licence to push up the pitch with the likes of Carl Walker and Cancelo. Obviously, Zinchenko came on. Then they were a lot more unpredictable in attack, weren't they? And that also allowed the wingers, Mares and Foden, to get in central positions closer to Kevin De Bruyne. And that led them to be able to sustain the attacks better and counter-press a lot quicker, which obviously meant that PSG were under this intense siege, weren't they? But now I'm just going to give a quick overview of the League Cup final. And Manchester City, of course, beat Spurs by one goal to nil. And this was a completely one-sided match shown by the expected goals from this match, which was 3.63 to City. And just 0.06 to Spurs. And Spurs lacked confidence in possession of the ball, aggression without it. And this led to City winning the duels throughout, dominating the tempo of this match. And they were incredibly lucky to get away losing by just a one-goal margin. So Gary Neville, after this match, guys, said that Manchester City may have the greatest manager of all time. And that got us thinking... Where does Guardiola rank in your top five managers to have managed since Guardiola's appointment as Barcelona manager in 2008? Joze, if we start with you from five to three.
1: Okay, so five to three. So fifth, I went Allegri. I mean, we're talking about somebody who has pretty much conquered the Italian league for about five years, I believe, winning the title every single consecutive season, winning a multitude of domestic titles as well to contribute to that. Um, I went fourth Klopp again I think we're talking about a manager who's obviously had success at the Bundesliga with Dortmund and has been able to replicate that perhaps even more so at Liverpool and I mean that season in which they won the title we're talking about one of the most formidable teams in Europe yellow in the Premier League and that, that all stemmed from Klopp it would only have been possible with his intellect so third I went Simeone and again I think it's pretty self-evident for why he's such high up, because, I mean, we're talking about a manager who's been deprived of funds, still managed to compete with the likes of Barcelona and Real Madrid, and especially when you had the likes of Ronaldo and Messi at their prime, let's say, you know, mostly around that time, and he was still competing, and obviously he got to two Champions League finals, so I think, to be honest, that's hard to dispute, so that is my 5-3. to three.
0: Yeah, you, you said it was self-evident having Simeone in third and then Luke's face, <laughs> the surprise really? on his face.
2: Wait, is it, hang on, is he a list? I love him. I've completely forgotten him. That's why I'm surprised.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be, uh, gotta be honest, I forgot about Klopp. You know, you know, I'm in your boat, to be honest. Uh,
2: I, I love Simeone. I just, I feel really bad. He's not even in my top <laughs> five. <laughs>
0: so I've gone for in fifth. Zidane, Zidane. I know I'm going to possibly get a little bit of scrutiny for this. However, with three Champions League wins on the bounce, and winning the league last season, I just think he's got to be in there, surely, winning three Champions Leagues on the bounce. Well, I was
1: just going to make this point though, because I've had this conversation with you you numerous times. It's not the fact that his success doesn't warrant the position, it's his overall contribution. So how... Has his you know, intellectualized and really contributed to Real Madrid winning those three consecutive Champions Leagues? Because I would attribute that mostly just to the standard of the team. Um, you know, given their experience and just their winning performances in the match. I'm not really sure if he really contributed that much to that success. But again, that's just my opinion.
2: Yeah, and I, I thought you were going to be harsher than that. To be honest with you, I thought you were going to rip his head off. <laughs> um, I, I knew I knew this was going to come up. I knew I knew someone was going to pick Zidane, and I had him in my honorable mentions because how can you not have him? Because he has so has had so much success in the last like, eight years. You know, the three Champions League wins, the the win of the league, uh, he's won at least one of the other cups, if not two or three. He's going to win the league again. Well, he might win the league again yeah. this year. You never know if things take another turn. Yeah, but it's, it's this debate, is it? I'll let you get back to your other managers, but it's this debate about whether we're judging them on the best managers or whether yeah. we're judging them on management slash trophy. Well, yeah, because
1: that's the distinction I'm making, obviously just to elaborate on what you're saying, because for me, I'd be pretty confident in that Madrid side for those three years winning that Champions League. I would put a lot of money on it, give Ronaldo's form. And again, around that time, there wasn't really much competition. So I would kind of you be judgmental if they weren't to win those Champions Leagues, given obviously the lack of competition obviously there. So again, I personally wouldn't have him in my top five because I don't think he's the most intellectual. But again, I understand the argument given his imminent success for how he were to be there.
0: Yeah, for me, it was a choice of Zidane or Simeone. You know that I've loved Simeone over the years, but just the fact that he hasn't won those Champions League finals, for me, Zidane's just got to be there. And in fourth, I've gone Jurgen Klopp, winning the league last season, Champions Leagues with Liverpool in 2019. Obviously, what he did at Dortmund beforehand as well, he's one of the best Klopp, isn't he, in terms of building an identity at a club. And then in third place, I've got Jose Mourinho, who is, or was at least, a serial winner. Obviously, Champions League with Inter Milan. He's won so many titles over the years, hasn't he, Mourinho? The only criticism you could give to him, obviously, of late, he hasn't performed as well, quite clearly, is he at Tottenham or Manchester United that final season at Chelsea. But Luke, who have you got in your list from
2: five to three? Okay, so uh, fifth for me. Oh, God, I've got so many honourable mentions. I really did toss and turn over this one. Right, fifth, and I'm biased here. I am going for Rafael Benitez. Now, let me explain why. <laughs> this isn't just with my Newcastle hat on. Listen, listen, listen. I, think it I have is. gone for similarly to you, Johan. I have gone, no, it's not. I have gone for coaching ability and what he can bring to a club. And I've got another one in here that's quite similar to him that I'll talk about in a moment. Now, I think we're forgetting that 2008 is 13 years ago. So whether you don't think he's at the top of his game now, and neither do I think Mourinho is, over 13 years ago... Most of the managers that we've spoken about, especially some of them in my top five, have been mega, mega successful during that period. So I know this is after the Liverpool Champions League win. Now, his trophy cabinet isn't the best in the last 13 years. He's done, you know, he's done Liverpool. He's done Newcastle. He, he, I, might, I add he won the championship there. Um, he's done Valencia. He's done Napoli. He's done Inter. He's done Real Madrid. And he's done the Chinese team. Now, I know there's not many trophies there. I'm guessing there's maybe three in there, perhaps. Maybe not more than that. But on coaching ability alone, on what he can bring to a club in terms of an identity, what he can bring in terms of... tactical discipline in terms of structure and being a Chelsea fan, you know, and you'll know how a structure of a team can transform an entire season. You know, you were going nowhere under Lampard in- until January, and then suddenly you're in a position to now win the Champions League and win the FA Cup, which would arguably be better than Pep season if you do that.
1: For me, it's an outrage just to compare Rafa Benitez to Thomas Tugo, because the transformation we've undergone is unparalleled to anything I've seen recently. So for you to make that well, ha- comparison... Well, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> You're talking about manager Rafa Benitez. What's the difference yeah. between him and Sean Dice, for example? They sit back, pack the bus, you know, don't get me wrong, very structured and everything, but in possession, it's improvised. So for me, to have him to such a high calibre is just not accurate. Because you just said then, you're attributing Moti to his intellect, and I don't really see that, personally.
2: I think improvised is seriously unfair. I think there's a difference between allowing your front players some freedom from the shackles being off, like the other players have, and having improvisation. I think you can tell when there's improvisation. And with a, better, with, with a good front three, he can play some good stuff. His Napoli team were very exciting, actually. You've mentioned Rafa Benitez okay. in fifth.
0: Okay. And Johan said that any manager could win the Champions League when Zidane was in. Well, Zidane actually took over from Benitez following Benitez losing 4-0 at the new Camp with arguably the best
2: team mm. ever. So, I think I think you know that sacking was slightly unfair. But he had two months. That was slightly unfair.
1: I, I think the issue was with Benitez in that team, he didn't have the respect. The plays didn't play for him. That was the reason, really, for why he got sacked as quick succession as that happened.
2: Okay right I I'll, I'll move on. This is someone extremely similar. <laughs> this is this is Carlo Ancelotti in fourth. Okay. Now he is quite similar. They are people who have gone up hugely in my estimations when they've taken over clubs for projects. They've both done Napoli, one did Newcastle, one's now doing Everton. They they massively go up in my respect when they do that because They are happy to build, and they're still big clubs, don't get me wrong, but they're happy to build from a much lower position where they know they're not going to have the funds or be able to challenge instantly for the highest, highest honours. He is extremely good as well at setting up a team, giving a structure. I mean... He is a good talker. He's well-respected. He's won an awful lot of trophies. He won the Champions League with Real. It was La Decima, wasn't it, which set them off before the Zidane ones, uh, which was important because they hadn't won it for about eight years before that. He's won the league titles and stuff with PSG. He obviously did a good job with AC Milan. Um, he he did Napoli. It didn't go so well there. Bayern, it didn't go so well either. And apparently he he lost the dressing room. He lost their respect. Now, this can happen. This doesn't mean you're a bad manager because we said that Real didn't respect Rafa. Maybe that's why they didn't play for him. Bayern didn't respect Ancelotti. Well, perhaps the players are just brats because these are both really good managers.
0: We'll get to your top twos now. And Joze, what did you go for as your top two best managers since 2008?
1: Okay, so second place I went for the most successful manager in world footballing history being Sir Alex Ferguson we're talking about a manager who's won 38 major trophies we're talking about a manager i think we can all agree his man management is perhaps the best we've ever seen the fact that he would distinguish his approach depending obviously on who's on the receiving end so for example with giggs he, he would you would scrutinize him if he were not to be working hard but obviously when there was someone like ronaldo he would obviously be a lot more you know he'd relent a bit more and keep him composed like he was he was the best i think from that standpoint And, you know, again, we're talking about a manager who's had success for nearly three decades, obviously, in the footballing scene. Uh, So I I think that is very much justified. And in first, I've gone for Pep Guardiola. We're talking about a manager who probably has refined in-possession football like no other. He hasn't just produced the most elegant teams in the last decade, but also the most lethal. um, And just his ability to really kind of foresee potential in players. And I always give the example with... Gundogan, the fact that he transformed him from a, a somewhat stable, solid midfielder into now a formidable goalscorer—it's just pretty impressive to see things of like that take place. You know, given what we have now, so I've gone Pep Guardiola number one.
0: Guardiola—he's won 14 out of 15 finals, eight wins out of eight at Wembley Stadium. Also won 32 trophies in total. Just since 2008. So I've gone with Guardiola at the top as well. And for me as well, it's the way he's revolutionised football, isn't it? You look at the impact he's had on the Premier League and how all these teams now are looking to pass from the back, you know, looking to create that numerical superiority with possession of the ball so that you can play through pressure, win the ball back quickly when you lose it. And he's inspired The up-and-coming managers, you know, you're talking the likes of Nagelsmann, the likes of Pochettino. It's all developed from Bielsa, isn't it, at Leeds? That's a type of system. That's where all these managers have moulded from. But Luke, I saw your face when Johan went for Sir Alex Ferguson. I think you've forgotten him as well, have you? (laughs)
2: I'm not going to lie to you, Dylan. I've had a bit of a mare. <laughs> right, OK, I'm going to change this slightly because I either don't have him in the top five or I have um, Mourinho not in the top five. Okay. So um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to revise what I had. Right, I've changed my answers, OK? So now in fifth for me is Simeone. In fourth is Klopp. In third is Jose Mourinho. So I've got what? rid of... I've got rid of Benitez and Chalotti. Did a bit, then? I've got... I've got Jose Mourinho third um, because the absolute master of the one-off games and then became a master of sustaining a league. Um he's dropped off massively, which we've talked about in the last four or five years. He's seriously, he's lost his touch. He's he, I don't know what's happened to him, he's lost his touch utterly, he's lost his way. Managers and teams are too good going forward now that he can't he can't even be good defensively. Even if he has a team that is wonderful defensively, the attackers in the game now are too good for that. And now he's got a team like Spurs that are not even good defensively. So he's having a nightmare. It's the worst of all worlds. But I think you've got to have him. The amount of trophies, the personality he still has, I think he's got to be there. Right, Sir Alex is number two now. He was not in there. Sir Alex is number two for all the same reasons you guys have mentioned. An absolute winner, a one-off, an individual with the best trophy cabinet ever. Um, He regenerated that Manchester United side so many times. He was fortunate to be given the chance to do that, which he wouldn't get in today's game. It's a different world, but there you go. He was lucky to be born into that era, I suppose. Wow. I mean, the amount of trophies, the amount of respect he commands, everyone looks up to him. So many good players came through that system. He was blessed with uh, owners that trusted him and a CEO in David Gill that was extremely supportive. But... My God, did he deliver. And then number one, same as you two, Pep Guardiola. I think the reason, which we haven't mentioned yet, so I'm trying to think of an original reason to give him this prize, is that he's not just a successful winning football manager. He's also an innovator. And I think the reason he will be remembered in the history books as the greatest manager slash coach ever over Sir Alex is because He's giving back to the football community, whether he means to or not. The amount of people he's inspiring, the amount of children, the amount of coaches at grassroots right up to teams in the Premier League and managers in the Champions League, they're all copying his style. They're all copying his tactics. Nobody wants to be Alex Ferguson. Everyone would love his trophy cabinet, but no one wants to be him. Well, I'm not sure about that. I, I, don't, I, I honestly don't think they do, Ewan. No one wants to be him in terms of...
1: No one wants to be Sir Alex Ferguson, the most successful manager in history.
2: You're not inspired by him from a coaching perspective, are you? Everyone wants his trophy cabinet. I don't think you are. You're inspired by many of his values. You're inspired by um, the, the firmness and the toughness and the way he was a sort of father figure and a grandfather figure to some players, that he was mean and he was able to move players on when they needed to move on or move them on just before it looked like they should move on. You know, your Beckhams, your Keens, genius, so many aspects of that. But Pep is such an innovator and an inspiration that I think the history books will remember him as the greatest because he's left such a legacy. Whereas Alex Ferguson is the most successful individual, isn't he?
1: Of course. But I just want to say, I would highly insist you ponder a bit more on that list because for you to have Jose Mourinho ahead of Diego Simeone is just astounding to me. From what he's achieved, given the lack of resources, the lack of foundation that was built in place... To him to be competing with Barcelona, Real Madrid year in, year out, I think very much Warren's a higher position than that.
2: Yeah, and I think I think you're crazy. I absolutely love Simeone, but how can you possibly say that Simeone is better than Jose Mourinho? Have you not looked at his career? Stillen, surely you agree with this. I've got Mourinho in third.
0: Yeah, rightfully so. Yeah, Yoan hasn't got. Mourinho in his top five at all. (laughs) Well, there we go. You're a hater.
1: Because he has no ability to make adaptations when necessary. For me, you can't be even a, a very good coach, really, if you're unwilling or reluctant to do so.
2: I don't know a more stubborn manager than Simeone. When does he ever go, oh, you know what, guys, just go and play?
1: Well, no, what? Well, yeah, to be that well, that's a pretty good point. I was hoping I was hoping you weren't going to say that. But I'm just saying that the foundation that has been present there—the lack of foundation as I would say—for him to have had the success he's had, two Champions League finals. And Dylan mentioned it. I think he was a bit unfit He went a two Champions League finals. He could have won those easily. One was on the penalty well, shoot Mourinho
2: did win his with
1: Porto. But he was, I, I, well, you're, you're confusing decade, Luke. We're talking since 2008. <laughs> this is the issue. So he went to two Champions League finals. One was a last-minute, brilliant header from Ramas. He couldn't legislate tactically anywhere for that. And as well for the penalty shootout. If not for that, he'd be champ. He'd be two-time champion of Europe with a team with deficient funds, self-developed right from the core. So for me, I just think if you look at it all theoretical, what he's had to deal with and having the success he's had, he very much wore into, I, I think, a top three.
2: We're talking about Madrid with Atletico Madrid. Yeah, I know, but you keep saying the success he's had, but then you just keep mentioning the two Champions League finals he's <laughs> lost. That's yeah. like just saying... That's like saying Spurs, the success <laughs> Spurs have had for getting to four just finals. So, said,
1: so he's managed Real Madrid, hasn't progressed further than the semi-finals, pretty much lost at every opportunity to Pep Guardiola. You put him in his place
2: tactically every... Remember that 5-0 loss? He he won the league and he also won the only final Pep's ever lost. Did you watch that game? They were the better team. <laughs>
0: You mentioned the lack of resources that Simeone has had at Atletico Madrid. If we were doing this four or five years ago, I would totally agree. However, yeah, Joe Felix, £126 million. Pounds. Alvaro Morata, £57 million. Pounds. Diego Costa, over £50 million. Pounds. Thomas Lamar, 40 to £50 million. Pounds.
1: You said since 2008, let's just so we understand. Right then, so we'll say, what, when did he take charge? 2013? It For about three, four, five-year periods. He wasn't really delegating any funds whatsoever.
0: We're going to have to move on now, guys. And But just very quickly before we do, obviously, I, I put Guardiola in first. And just to add on to something Luke was saying about Sir Alex Ferguson, he's the master at man management, isn't he? In terms of adapting the way he approaches players. You know, he would treat Cantona different to the way he would treat the likes of Gary Neville, to the way he would treat Wayne Rooney, for example, Ronaldo. So, you know, we're talking about a manager who's had such sustained success over such a long time. For me, he was second place. And as I said, Mourinho was just behind him in third. But we're going to move on now, guys, to Chelsea against Real Madrid. And post-match, Tuchel said, we could have maybe decided this game in the first Half an hour. So with how poor Madrid were in this first leg, especially during the first half when they looked to press Chelsea at times, which allowed Chelsea's forwards then to get in behind the Real Madrid midfield, will Chelsea be looking back on this match and thinking, oh, you know, that may just come back to haunt us in the second leg? What do you think,
2: Luke? I think you're right they were all over them they were playing fantastically well it was partly Zidane's back three that didn't work at all and no one knew what was going on they were being sliced open i thought Pulisic was really really good in the in the opening moments uh, mount had a really good half an hour as well verner uh, that miss aside was looking lively and getting behind them. And that's why he's still in the team, because he is actually still contributing merely by running behind defences, um, which is something Tammy or Giroud wouldn't do, even if they would score one of the chances, perhaps. I thought they were really, really good. I thought they could have been 2 3 nil up, and they'll be gutted that they weren't. I'm sure Jerm will mention it, but he, he called it half an hour in and said, if we don't win this game, i.e. Chelsea don't win this game, then I'll be very, very gutted. And... I, 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 he'll tell you himself, I think he is gutted because Real Madrid offered basically nothing, slowly worked themselves back into the game. Then once they got to one all, they sort of just stuck there, held on a bit. Could have maybe nicked a goal. Chelsea obviously could have nicked one too. And then were quite happy in the end with the one-all.
0: Yeah, in the second half, there was a complete drop-off in performance, wasn't it, from Chelsea? Especially from the start of the second half to about the 60th minute. They just couldn't keep possession of the ball at all, Chelsea, could they? Obviously, they made those subs then, didn't they? Havertz, Ziyech, Reese James came on. And that just refreshed Chelsea, just gave them that ability to just keep the ball, uh, slow down the tempo of the match. But Tuchel said after the game, "Yos, that for moments we had to suffer. We could have hurt Real Madrid more with an extra day's rest. So, is that what led to Chelsea's drop-off in performance, Yos, in the second half?"
1: Well, it most probably is a contributing factor. I, I think the reason why we didn't win the game or we can replicate the first half performance generally was because it was almost as if all of a sudden the the players just went drinking that half time and we couldn't string a pass together come the second half it was a pretty astonishing display the first half um you know if it wasn't really for Chelsea's goal scoring deficiencies I think we would have eradicated Real Madrid that first half completely and given them no chance to come back I, I was really disappointed with Real Madrid um you know very dysfunctional tactically I mean you play this high line and the reason why you play a high line and you you. press, You know, when you play such a high line, you're exposed defensively. So you try and compensate through relentlessly pressing. And then they didn't do that. So, you know, and that obviously gave the likes of Mason Mount the luxury, obviously, to turn and to find vertical passes into players who were occupying that space, which is Werner in behind the midfield. And this was just an ongoing process throughout. Um, So, yeah, I think to the contrary, obviously, Liverpool, we did neutralise the likes of Modric and Cruz simply because we actually placed a lot more pressure on them. And for me, it really just shows, to, especially Spiga de Cruz, just how one-dimensional he really is. If you don't give him that luxury of space, very predictable, very limited, passes out wide, and he becomes immediately ineffective. But of course, you know, Thomas Tuchel is correct, saying that if they were to be given an extra day's rest, perhaps the game would have unfolded differently to an extent. But regardless, that still doesn't justify Chelsea's second half debacle, as I would say, in which we couldn't string up a pass together. And that was the reason why we enabled them to get back into the game.
0: Johan mentioned there the pressing from Real Madrid. They did look to play a higher line, didn't they, Real Madrid? The normal, higher line than they did against Liverpool. And obviously, with the lack of legs in midfield, with the likes of Modric and Cruz, they just couldn't apply the pressure, could they, to Chelsea? Which obviously meant then that Chelsea were able to play around the press. And then in the second half, Real Madrid went back to their usual self in the Champions League, Dropped 10, 15, maybe even 20 yards deeper, stayed in a nice compact 5-3-2 block and they just shut Chelsea out, didn't they? Which obviously led to Chelsea just keeping the ball and they were almost happy to take that result back to Stamford Bridge. And just quickly talking about something that Johan mentioned there with the likes of Kroos and Modric and Chelsea almost controlling that. Well, I'm not sure if you noticed this, guys, but with Real Madrid playing the three centre backs, especially in the first half, Cruz and Modric, they were dropping in as wide centre backs. So this happened very commonly on the left. So Cruz would drop in on the left, Nacho would move up to left wing back, and then Marcelo then would move into centre midfield. So Luke mentioned earlier about Zidane maybe overcomplicating it. Do you think he did overcomplicate it there, yo's? Having the likes of Marcelo in possession in midfield, Cruz dropping deep into a wide centre-back, role, Nacho left wing back?
1: Well, again, I think that's absolutely correct. And it just plays into my assessment, saying that the whole approach from Real Madrid's standpoint was very dysfunctional. I think, obviously the likes of Marcelo weren't quick enough in making those transformations, like, obviously, making that transition into midfield when he had to. Because of his age, he doesn't have the legs and, you know, it was inevitable. It just wasn't going to be sustainable. So I have, you know, some big, you know, questions as to why Zidane would obviously approach the game the way he did. The reason, the logic behind playing Marcelo in such a game where, you know, Pressing is going to be a necessity, especially when you play in as high as they are. You have to compensate through that relentless pressing, and they couldn't provide that. And that was the reason for why Chelsea, obviously, you know, especially that first half display, were rampant.
0: Yeah, he couldn't get back into position quick enough, Marcelo, could he? From that, obviously, as I said, left wing back out of possession, moved into midfield with possession quite often, and as you say, he just didn't have the legs to get back. But obviously, with the injuries to Furlan, Mendy, Vasquez. There just wasn't many options and I think that almost forced Zidane to play that back three to accommodate the likes of Marcelo taking a little bit longer to get back into position. But they were a little bit better in the second half, Real Madrid, in possession of the ball because Cruz, instead of dropping into a wide centre-back role, was dropping in between the centre-backs which meant he was still able to connect with the likes of Modric from those central positions. But we're going to move on now, guys. So... If you were Tuchel, cool, which three forwards would you play in the second leg against Madrid? Werner, he missed plenty of chances, again, especially in those early moments of the Real Madrid game. So, Yos, who would you play as your three forwards to obviously get the best result out of that second leg game back at Stamford Bridge?
1: It's a very interesting question to pose. I mean, I've gone back and forth on this, been really tentative indeed, but... For me, the key to this is utilising Werner. I think much of my, you know, is what I'm going to be saying now is predicated around his best interest. So, for me, and I know I'm probably going to get rebuked by Luke from saying this, and be so, perhaps, but I've actually gone for Werner on the left, I've gone Pulisic on the right, I mean, we're not going to get into that debate because, okay, for the obvious <laughs> reason. Well, we could do. Anyway, and then
0: actually, as a centre-forward, I've gone for Havertz. So you haven't got Mount in your front three?
1: For me, I'd be willing to compromise
0: on Mount
1: if it were to mean that I could optimise Werner. And I think that would be the case if I were to play Havertz in that false line position, coming deep and then playing the balls I think that's
0: absolutely ridiculous not to play Mason Mount, the foreman that he's been in (laughs) at Chelsea, not to play him as one of your front three is absolutely crazy. Love
1: it. You don't need to play... Just so I understand, you don't need to play him in that front three. You could play him in that three midfield too, whether it's the head of that diamond or anything else. It doesn't have to be in that final front three. Who are you
2: dropping then? Kante, Kovacic or Jorginho?
1: Um... (laughs) Well, I, out of those, I'd probably go Georginio. to be honest. I know he's very well-disciplined, everything so else. So you're going to but...
2: play Kante and Mount as a two? Are you happy with that? I
1: Yeah, I would do that.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're not. You're talking yeah, rubbish. I don't think, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Forgotten Mounts, I think. You don't believe that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Mount's back in. Havertz on the bench.
0: In my front three, guys, I've gone for Havertz as a false nine, because I think he's performed the role brilliantly for Leverkusen, four obviously he played it brilliantly against Crystal Palace as well I've got Mason Mount on the right of the three just dropping in off the front and then Timo Werner on the left especially if the team leave lots of space in behind however if they don't and Real Madrid were to sit back like they did in the second half I think you'd be better off going for a Christian Pulisic however not knowing exactly how Madrid will play and seeing how they did set up in the first half I would go for Werner. Uh, just to exploit any spacing behind Madrid may potentially allow.
1: Oh, I was just going to mention the fact that, obviously, if you were to do as the system in place with Dillon, there's literally no pace whatsoever.
2: I've still got Timo Werner in the So, team. yes, it
1: sounds great in theory. No, he's not bombing.
2: Well, Havertz isn't either, is he?
1: No, but obviously, if you have Pusic, you're compensating for that. So I think there's a decent balance there.
0: What I would say is that you don't need... If you look at most teams and the way they play... I would agree that, you know, you look at the likes of Liverpool, you've got Salah and Mane, you know, two players with pace. For me, though, the way that Tuchel wants to play with Chelsea, they've played better when they've had two players like Mount, like a Havertz in there, who drop in off the front, and then you've got somebody like Werner with his pace running through off the left, those diagonal runs between the opposition centre-back and full-back. And when I think back to Timo Werner at Leipzig, he was always playing with another front man um, who would drop in off the front, somebody like Paulson. And for me, Havertz could do that role really well. So, as I said, Mount for me is completely undroppable from that front three. He's been the star man for Chelsea, especially since Tuchel has been appointed. He's completely stepped up his game. So for me, he was a given. As I said, I've been really impressed with Havertz when he's dropped in off the front in that false nine position. And I haven't actually seen it from Tuchel yet. Trying Werner... On the left, with Havertz as that false nine, and I just think it would work brilliantly. But who did you go for, Luke, as your front three for Chelsea?
2: On the left, inside forward, I've gone Marcus Alonso. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 oh, I just no. wanted to see. I just wanted to see your face. See. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, no, I, I, I found this. I found this really hard as well, actually, because they've got a lot of different options. It's not just good players the way you play is determined by who you play because we've talked about pace versus no pace, whether you need it, whether you actually need a striker. I'm not starting Abraham. I'm not starting Giroud because they're probably not even going to get on the pitch. But if they do, it will be because they desperately need a tap in. They need a goal towards the back end. So I'm not starting them. I'm not starting Callum Hudson-Odoi. I'm not starting Havertz either. I don't hate Havertz at all. I think he's going to be absolutely brilliant. But I'm not going to start him because I I just... (sighs) When I watch him play, and this is not me speaking as a Chelsea fan, who I'm I, I, so I'm sure that he is contributing things, and I thought he was great at Palace. His lack of athleticism is a bit annoying because he's a bit taller than I feel he wants to be, and he's not as good at moving around the pitch as I feel he should be. But anyway, I'm, I'm not going to start him. Mount definitely starts. He's undroppable, maybe in the, in the left, inside, forward bit. Um, I think I'm going to keep Werner as well. Because, as we spoke about a little bit before, he is still contributing. And if you don't watch football, you think he's awful, you think he's rubbish and you see the misses and you you kind of laugh at him if you're a neutral football fan. But if you actually watch the games... He's, he's getting crucial assists. He got the crucial assist for the FA Cup game the other day. He got a crucial assist in the Champions League against Atletico. He's contributing a lot and he's stretching defences and he is working hard. So I'm going to go Mount Werner and then I'm a little bit torn between Pulisic and a player neither of you guys mentioned, which is Ziyech, who I know hasn't had the best season, but he he's come on quite nicely under Tuchel in the last sort of six weeks or so and he hasn't been ripping it up. He, he's not sort of... He's got the frame of Mares, but he isn't doing Mares things He's having to be a bit more clever and he's using the ball well. So I'm a bit torn. I'm going to go Pulisic because I think he... Well, A, because of course I love him. Um, but B, because I, he, he, B because he's, he's finally having his best moment of the season, I think, isn't he? He's started to score a few more goals. So I think him and Ziyech impact sub like the other day. So Mount, Werner, Pulisic. That's the long way round of saying I'd keep it yeah. the same. With Ziyech... For me, he's too hit and miss. I agree, Dylan, but how, how can you say that and then immediately start Havertz and also sing the praises of Werner? I mean, all three of them, the, all the three signings have been very inconsistent. Havertz, I would argue, has been worse than Ziyech.
1: Yeah, but that's because they haven't really discovered his role though, haven't they?
0: Well, that's fair enough. For me, Havertz hasn't been given a fair run in the team. He hasn't played consistently. You look at the way that Tuchel's continuously played Werner through this poor form. You know, I think Havertz has played a maximum of two games in a row. Do you know what I mean? He played very well against Crystal Palace. Then he played the next game against Porto, where obviously they lost that game by one goal to nil. But as I said, none of the Chelsea players were at it that day either. But when you get the ball into Havertz, in off the front, like they did against Crystal Palace, and get Mason Mount, get Timo Werner in and around Havertz, I think he'd be brilliant. Maybe not brilliant, but... He would utilise that Chelsea front three better than the other guys. Both have gone for Pulisic. For me, if you're playing somebody on the right, it's got to be either ZH, because obviously he's left-footed, cutting in off the right, or Mason Mount. And for me, Mason Mount, as I said, has played that role really well in off the right. So for me, he was the most obvious choice to play on that right. What, what do you think about playing Pulisic and Werner together, guys? Do you think... There's an argument there that you can't really get the best out of them both playing together.
2: I don't have a problem with it. I mean, they should have been 3-0 up in the first half and they played together then. I don't think you can have too much pace as long as they're intelligent in their movements and Werner is not doing so much of what you said he was doing in the second half. Then I think I think it's possible. I, th- I think you can never have too much pace. I think it's all right. I mean, Real Madrid are quite slow. And if Ramos is back, especially, it will be a back four Ramos-Varan. You can get at them the reason they were
0: able to utilise that pace in the first half was because of Real Madrid's poor pressing in the first half. They're not going to do that again, surely, in the second match because in the second half they dropped off. And Pulisic, Werner and Mount as a three were almost useless from the 45th to the 60th minute with those three uh, and Real Madrid dropping deeper. I agree with the argument that, you know, they were good in the, in the first half quite clearly. They created lots of chances... But as I said, it was almost to me as if whoever played on the left, whether it was Pulisic or Werner, were playing well, and then when the other guys shifted to the right, they were almost just, just so ineffective on that right side.
2: True, but I can hardly yeah. see. I can hardly see Havertz starting a press. I mean, he, he 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 can't really move around the pitch. I don't think he's that immobile.
0: We're not talking about Olivier Giroud here, are we? Um, you know he's mm. he's more mobile than Ziyech Yeah, you know ZH is not the most mobile. <laughs> can't yeah, okay. He can't provide you.
1: He doesn't take effect unless you literally give him the ball. If you give him the ball and the luxury down the left hand side, cut on his left, putting a ball in, to a large extent, he's pretty much ineffective. And that was that's my biggest issue with starting a player like Ziyech I don't think he can accommodate you any other way unless he's in possession. He's not. You can't really see a player like him interchanging, making runs in behind. So for me, he has some pretty severe limitations to his game.
0: We mentioned a few weeks ago, didn't we, about players that we would sign to bring the goals needed to that front three, didn't we? And we mentioned the likes of Haaland, the likes of, I think somebody mentioned Ecardi, I mentioned Bellotti, Rafinha. They're going to need some sort of injection, aren't they, in the summer to really narrow that gap to Manchester City. And for me, if they can get that one player who can basically play on that right side and bring those goals to the Chelsea team... I honestly don't think they'll be too far away from Manchester City come next season, but we're going to have to move on now, guys. Welcome, Danny Ings. Danny Ings, that was another one you mentioned, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> honestly, yeah. Ian Acho, I'm telling you, Ian Nacho cutting in on that left, I'll tell Hashtag you Hashtag
2: welcome, I- Ian Acho.
1: <laughs> honestly, I would pay him at this stage to come to my club with my own money.
2: <laughs> if you've got 16 million or 60
0: million... Then be fine. saving it for a long time there, yous. But anyway, I'm going to quickly mention now the La Liga title race. And what a title race that's going on there. And I mentioned earlier about Atletico Madrid bottling it. Well, they lost 2-1 against Athletic Bilbao on Sunday. And honestly, Atletico Madrid have been all over the place recently. Real Madrid as well, they've drew three games out of their last 5 nil nil-nil, And they drew again 0-0 against Real Betis on the weekend. Obviously, we mentioned earlier about some of the injuries they've been suffering with. And with both of those teams, Atletico and Real Madrid dropping points, that allowed Barcelona to narrow the gap with their 2-1 win over Villarreal. And with Barcelona having a game in hand against Granada tonight, if they win that match,
2: they will actually go top. Can I just interrupt? They've lost. They've just oh, lost. Oh, they've just, just lost. Checked. They've just lost 2-1 to Granada. Oh, really? 79 minute. Yeah. So they are now all caught up And they haven't made any ground at all. They remain on 71. So just that I give you that bit of breaking news. That's huge news there in that La Liga title race. At home as well. At
0: home, losing 2-1 to Granada. So as it stands now, Atletico Madrid are top on 73 points. Second are Real Madrid and Barcelona. Joint second on 71 points. And in fourth are Sevilla on 70 points. They've come out of nowhere back into this La Liga title race. They beat Granada 2-1 on the weekend. And I'm not sure if you saw this, guys, but the referee actually took the Sevilla players off on the 93rd minute because the referee Mm. missed... He just completely mistimed his additional time. And he blew the whistle on 93 minutes. The players went into the tunnel and the referee said, oh, actually, we've still got a minute left to play. So they had to come back onto the pitch, the Sevilla players.
1: So there's four minutes added on, is that correct? There was four minutes added on?
0: Yes, so there was four minutes added on, so they had to play that extra minute due to the refs' missed timings, which is absolutely extraordinary. And some huge fixtures again this weekend, with Barcelona playing Valencia, Real Madrid against Osasuna, and Elche against Atletico Madrid. And in just a week's time, guys, Barcelona against Atletico Madrid, well, what a huge fixture that is in the La Liga title race. And there's just five games to play. we're going to move on now, guys, to the end of the show quiz. So, with Julian Nagelsmann becoming Bayern Munich manager, following a record €25 million compensation fee paid to Leipzig, name the following nine managers to have moved for the highest compensation fee. And I will quickly list the clubs that these managers moved from and to. So, get your pens and papers out. This is going to be difficult. So, we've got a manager... Who moved from PSG to Real Madrid. A manager who moved from Villarreal to Real Madrid. From Porto to Chelsea. From Swansea to Liverpool. Blackburn to Manchester City. Inter to Real Madrid. This is a tough one, so I I wouldn't be surprised if you couldn't get this one. But SC Braga to Sporting Lisbon. And just to give you an extra clue, that was for €10 million. Wow. Celtic to Leicester. And finally, FC Porto to Chelsea. Okay, guys, you've got an extra 30 seconds there to write down those managers. There's, There's two
2: Porto to Chelsea's? Yes, you've got two... Porto for Chelsea, yes, that's correct.
0: Yeah, honestly, I don't I've know. Got some
2: e- I've got some easy ones, but I'm struggling on the second Porto to Chelsea. I swear Mourinho
1: is like three of these. He probably
2: is. That's all yeah. right. Well, well done for giving Luke some clues there, <laughs> oh sure I, I've
1: what?
2: already got him, actually, oh, three
0: okay. times. Okay, so five, four, three, oh, two, I don't...
2: one.
0: Okay, so we'll work through these guys. Okay, so PSG to Real Madrid. Who is that, Yose? PSG to Real Madrid.
2: <sighs> I Okay, you don't know Luke? Uh, I've gone Carlo Angelotti. That's right. Thank you. Oh, Yoan, you idiot. You. Oh no. Villarreal to Real Madrid. Uh uh L- L-
0: No. Not Julian Lepitagi, no. Yoan. No. Um, someone like
1: Pellegrini, maybe?
0: Oh, great shout. Pellegrini. Shut Brilliant. up. You're
2: joking. Yeah, for oh. four <laughs> million I didn't euros. get the PSG
1: word. I was... Oh, man.
2: Oh, well done. That is an absolute cracker. Well done. Okay, I've never so done that. Okay, so Porto to Chelsea. So there's two of these. Okay. Who are they, yos? Two
1: Porto to Chelseas. So obviously one's Mourinho.
2: Should we agree to say Mourinho for this one? Yeah.
1: Yeah, who are they? Oh, oh, VS Boas, maybe.
2: Hang on, hang on. I've Luckily, I've got that. I have got that. Yeah, Andre Villas-Boas is the yeah. other one. And he's
0: actually second. Well, if you look at Nagelsmann as the top, Villas-Boas was first in terms of the highest compensation fee paid for a manager, moving for wow, €15 million euros that back is in incredible. 2012. So for about three on... months. Yeah. Next on the list, we've got Swansea to Liverpool. Brendan Rogers. Yeah. yeah Blackburn to Manchester City Mark Hughes um, oh, yeah. Yeah, So both of those, yeah. Rodgers and Mark Hughes Were for
2: 6.2 million euros I would pay that for him not to be near my club Personally yeah. <laughs> Inter to Real Madrid oh, oh, Jose yeah, Mourinho again. Yeah.
0: Yep, Jose yeah. Mourinho Do you know what guys, I'm going to give you bonus points If you get this, because I don't see either of you getting it <laughs> SC Braga to Sporting Lisbon
2: I'm going to just guess. It's not um, Jorge Jesus, is it?
1: Is it? Oh, I was was just going to say the Portuguese manager.
0: No, so it's Ruben Amorim. And he's actually currently the Sporting Lisbon manager and they're currently top of the Portuguese league. He's had a brilliant impact. So you could argue he was worth the 10 million euro compensation fee, even though you guys haven't even heard of him. But (laughs) Celtic to Leicester. Obviously, Rogers again. Mm-hmm. Brendan Rogers again. And obviously, Porto to
2: Chelsea was at the top. I think it might be a tie break. Yo, and how many did you get? I I got seven.
1: I did not get seven. I think you beat me.
2: I think oh, I had about five. Bless bless I, I can't believe
1: it. I didn't get bloody Ancelotti. I was, yeah, I was yeah. baffled. I just, I completely Fair forgot. He... Pellegrini
2: though. That was a cracker. Uh, yeah. uh.
0: Just before we move on to our matches to look out for, over the next week, just want to give a quick mention to the league-earned title race. And with PSG beating Metz by three goals to one... ...and Monaco beating Angers by one goal to nil... ...it was all down to Lille on Sunday night to beat Lyon. However, the pressure showed and they were down by two goals to nil inside the first 35 minutes. However, a brace and an assist from Barak Yilmaz inspired Lille to come back and win that match... And the final goal, guys, was brilliant. He was through on goal. Little dink, little chip over the keeper. Brilliant finish. So calm under huge pressure. And that means Lille are still top of league earn with just four games to play. Lille on 73 points. PSG second with 72. And Monaco in third on 71. So just two points separating the front, the top three there. So matches to look out for over the next week. We've got the Bundesliga, so it's a weekend off this week, which may well be good for Bayern to recuperate following their 2-1 loss to Mainz on the weekend, but they're still in a great position, just needing one more win out of three to be crowned Bundesliga champions. In the Premier League, in the Champions League race, Liverpool, they're playing Manchester United at Old Trafford on the weekend. Ligue 1, a huge match there, Monaco against Lyon. Luke, what's your match to look out for over the
2: next week? Uh, my match to look out for, I actually, I haven't done it, um, but I'm going to make one up now. It is, uh, who are Chelsea playing?
0: Chelsea are playing, I haven't got it down.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Chelsea's match this week. I look forward to seeing if they keep another clean sheet and a two-shot. Yeah, of course, Chelsea are playing Real Madrid, so obviously yeah. that could potentially be your yeah, match that to look for. Yeah, that one, that <laughs> <yeah>. one.
0: <laughs> so, Yos, what's your match to look out for over the next week?
1: Okay, so I selected the uh, second leg for the PSG versus Man City fixture in the semi-final. It's a game that, again, you can't really predict it. It could go either way. I'm still not ruling out PSG completely. It looks like it's in the advantage for Man City. However, when you have the likes of Neymar and Mbappe, they, they have the ability to manipulate the game in their favour. So I've gone for that.
0: And just before we finish, we've got a special episode next week where we name our World 11s who have played since Messi and Ronaldo's dominance of the Ballon d'Or, winning all but one since 2008. Really looking forward to that big debate next week. But that's all we've got time for on the Football Overview this week. Thanks to Joze, thanks to Luke, and we'll see you again for another episode next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.